I'm Neil Orford. Welcome to the Critique podcast for February 2015. This is where we go through the literature for the last month and talk about the articles that caught our eye. So let's start with failure of anticoagulation thromboprophylaxis, risk factors in medical, surgical, critically ill patients, published in Critical Care Medicine. So this multivariate analysis of the PROTECT trial data, which was 3,746 patients in 67 ICUs, randomized to DVT prophylaxis with low molecular weight heparin versus unfractionated heparin, aims to identify variables associated with treatment failure for anticoagulant thromboprophylaxis in critically ill patients. So they define treatment failure as VTE, that is DVT at any site, or PE diagnosed greater than or equal to 72 hours after ICU admission. 7.7% of patients developed an incident VTE during the study and all received VTE prophylaxis. The median time to VTE was 7 days. So an increased risk of any VTE was associated with a personal family history of VTE, increased BMI, so a 1.18 hazard ratio for every 10-point increase. An increased risk of proximal DVT was associated with increased BMI, and statin treatment in the previous week was associated with a lower risk of proximal DVT. Finally, increased risk of PE was associated with increased BMI and use of inotropes and vasopressors. So the most interesting point is the BMI result, supporting the argument that weight-based dosing for VTE prophylaxis is required to address the systematic underdosing in obese patients with associated failure of thromboprophylaxis. A similar argument is made for vasopressors and inotropes, that is, the bioavailability of anticoagulants is reduced, necessitating a change in dosing. And finally, statin use has previously been associated with decreased VTE in non-critically ill patients, so that's an interesting finding. Okay, moving on to American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. We have critical care bed growth in the United States, a comparison of regional and national trends. So is ICU bed overuse driven at least partially by excess supply? This article provides a US perspective on this area of critical care and provides some interesting insights. It is estimated that the national critical care spend is over 82 billion US dollars annually, with the number of ICU beds increasing from 69,300 in 1985 to 93,955 in 2005. The authors conducted a database study using longitudinal data between 2000 and 2009 on ICU bed numbers occupancy and population demographics for the entire US. They found a decrease in the number of acute care hospitals, that's a 9% decrease, with a constant number of total hospital beds. So we're seeing uh, less hospitals with more beds per hospital. A 15.1% increase in ICU beds, a slight increase from 336 
to 34.7 ICU beds per 100,000 adult population. There was substantial regional variation in ICU bed growth. So there was a median of plus 16 ICU beds with an interquartile range of minus 3 to plus 51 with 25% of regions accounting for 75% of overall growth. And finally, the high growth regions, that is for ICU beds, at baseline had larger populations with less ICU beds per 100,000 capita, a higher average ICU occupancy and greater market competition. So overall, over the decade, the US saw a static number of acute care beds with a large increase in ICU beds, although population-adjusted ICU bed supply remained relatively constant. Some regions increased ICU bed supply out of proportion with population growth, while other regions decreased ICU beds supply relative to population trends. It seems more of the US bed stock is critical care beds, proportionally, but with so much variation, the ideal bed supply is not apparent. The authors discuss the concept of certificate of need laws to control ICU bed supply in the US, while weighing up the potential adverse effects on outcome. A complex issue indeed. Now staying with the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, we have another organisational paper and that is the impact of the organisation of high dependency care on acute hospital mortality and patient flow for critically ill patients. So high dependency care or HDC, HDU, intermediate care, call it what you want, is the less intense, less expensive level of care after ICU and it exists in many forms. These include co-located or integrated or geographically separate, dual, to the ICU. Different models of providers also exist. Now the separate HDU is called dual as there is the option to provide HDU in the primary ICU or in the geographically separate unit. This study examines the effect of a geographically separate dual unit compared to an integrated unit on flow of patients and mortality during and after critical illness. So during 2009 to 2011, outcomes of patients admitted to 192 adult level 3 ICUs in the UK and then to a level 2 HDU were compared according to dual, which was 21.4%, versus integrated, which was 79.6%. So they found that integrated ICU HDUs had more beds, which is not surprising, 9 versus 8 with the median number of beds in the dual HDU 8, that is 8 standalone beds in a separate HDU. 36.6% of HDUs, dual HDUs, had intensivists covering the separate HDU, and there's a joint model in only 19.5%. There was no difference in hospital mortality if you had a dual or an integrated ICU. Dual HDUs were associated with a decreased likelihood of delayed discharge from the primary ICU. 
dual HDUs were associated with an increased total duration of critical care and an increased likelihood of discharge from the primary ICU at night. So perhaps it's not surprising that the dual HDU model reduces discharge delay from ICU, increases total ICU HD length of stay and increases nocturnal transfer. After all, this is effectively a pressure relief valve for the ICU. So overall, this does not provide an overwhelming argument for either model. It is important to note it is a UK-based study where there is a relative under-provision of ICU beds, particularly compared to the US, so patients are not admitted to ICU for monitoring. So in summary, the optimal model of geographical location of HDU remains elusive. Okay, let's move on to diseases. And in the New England Journal of Medicine, we have driving pressure and survival in the acute respiratory distress syndrome. So this special article is authored by a pool of experts in ARDS. So it's definitely worth looking at. The components of a protective lung strategy aimed at reducing ventilator-induced mechanical stress include lower tidal volume, lower plateau pressure, higher PEEP. However, with multiple trials producing multiple results with manipulation of various components and optimizing one component leading to a negative effect on others, e.g. increasing PEEP may increase plateau pressure, it is difficult to identify an ideal strategy. The authors hypothesized respiratory driving pressure which is tidal volume over respiratory system compliance, is more likely to be associated with survival as driving pressure is more closely scaled to available lung than tidal volume, which is estimated on ideal body weight or PEEP. So how did they examine this and what did they find? Well, they analysed data on 3,562 patients in nine ARDS RCTs. The primary outcome was 60-day mortality. They performed forward stepwise and backwards multivariate analysis and also used a statistical tool called multi-level mediation analysis to investigate whether, whether driving pressure was more than a baseline risk predictor. When mediation analysis is applied to randomized controlled trials, the goal is to determine whether a specific variable strongly affected by treatment group assignment has an effect on outcomes that explains in whole or in part the effects resulting from treatment group assignment. So in low tidal volume studies was survival better explained by specific ventilatory variables than treatment group. They looked at tidal volume, plateau pressure, PEEP and driving pressure. So, driving pressure was most strongly associated with survival. A one standard deviation increment in driving pressure, approximately 7 centimeters of water, was associated with increased mortality with a relative risk of 1.41 and 95% confidence intervals of 1.31 to 1.51. For the tidal volume and PEEP trials, treatment group assignment was an independent predictor of survival. Except for driving pressure, however, no mediation candidates consistently passed through the stepwise mediation tests. Individual changes in tidal volume or PEEP 
after randomization were not independently associated with survival. They were associated only if they were among the changes that led to reductions in driving pressure. So in summary, the trials of mechanical ventilation involving patients with ARDS, change in pressure or driving pressure was the variable most strongly associated with survival. So although this is not an RCT and cannot establish causality, the finding that the strong correlation between tidal volume and survival in ARDS is apparent only when scaled to respiratory system compliance. The authors discuss the possible explanation for the variable results from PEEP trials, that is, increased PEEP is only beneficial when it results in a change in lung mechanics so the same tidal volume can be delivered at a lower driving pressure. Fascinating. So the end result is we need clinical trials that investigate optimal driving pressure. Let's move on to JAMA and effect of corticosteroids on treatment failure among hospitalized patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia and high inflammatory response, a randomized clinical trial. So CAP is the leading infectious disease cause of death in developed countries, and mortality rates are highest in those that experience treatment failure. An excessive host inflammatory response has been associated with treatment failure, leading to the hypothesis that modulating excessive inflammatory response may reduce treatment failure and improve outcomes. This multi-center RCT in three Spanish teaching hospitals enrolled 120 patients with severe CAP and a high inflammatory response, CRP greater than 150, to methylpred, half a milligram per kilogram BD, or placebo. It was started within 36 hours of admission and continued for five days. They report baseline characteristics were similar, 75% were in ICU at enrolment, and there was similar antibiotic treatment and etiological diagnosis. The primary outcome was treatment failure, and that occurred in 13% of the methyl pred group versus 31% of the placebo, p-values of 0.02, a difference of 18%. Corticosteroid treatment was associated with, with reduced risk of treatment failure, odds ratio of 0.34. The difference in treatment failure was due to the decrease in late treatment failure due to radiographic progression, 2% versus 15%, and a non-significant decrease in late septic shock, 0 versus 7%. Early treatment failure was defined as clinical deterioration indicated by development of shock, need for invasive mechanical ventilation, not present at baseline, or death within 72 hours. Late treatment failure was defined as radiographic progression, persistence of severe respiratory failure, development of shock, need for invasive mechanical ventilation, not present at baseline, or death between 72 hours and 120 hours after treatment initiation. And there were no difference in secondary outcomes. Hospital mortality was 10% in the PRED versus 15% in the placebo group. So in summary, this study describes a reduction in treatment failure from 35% to 13% due to reduced late radiographic progression and septic shock in patients treated with corticosteroids for severe community-acquired pneumonia.
There was no associated reduction in mortality or length of stay, although there were only 120 patients. So this would probably need to be replicated on a larger scale to establish the external validity of these results. Okay, in critical care medicine, we have a paper called The Epidemiology of Chronic Critical Illness in the United States. So chronic critical illness is a syndrome characterized by increased hospitalization and poor long-term survival with an associated financial burden. However, we are still lacking information on prevalence, outcomes and associated costs. This retrospective cohort study of the epidemiology of chronic critical illness from a broad sample of US hospitals from 2004 to 2009 applied a consensus criteria for CCI and reported that 7.6% of patients admitted to ICUs had criteria for chronic critical illness. This represents a population prevalence of CCI of 34.4 per 100,000, increasing with age. So it was 82.1 per 100,000 for over for 75 to 79 year olds, and this declined after this due to an increase in mortality in patients with CCI who are over 80. Only 21.8% of chronic critical illness patients were discharged home. Now the criteria for critical illness included at least eight days in an ICU and one of five eligibility conditions, prolonged acute mechanical ventilation, tracheostomy, sepsis and other severe infections, severe wounds and multiple organ failure, ischemic stroke, intracerebral hemorrhage or TBI. In hospital, mortality for chronic critical illness patients was 33.1% in 2004 and 28.7% in 2009. The estimated cost was over 26 billion US dollars. The authors conclude that this is the first large national data study showing prevalence and outcomes of CCI. This is a large and informative study. However, a clear limitation is that it defines CCI based on ICU characteristics and provides hospital outcomes but doesn't provide any post-hospital outcomes that define the nature of the morbidity associated with chronic critical illness. So there's more work to be done. Okay, going back to JAMA, we have the proper randomized clinical trial. So damage control resuscitation is defined as rapid hemorrhage control through early administration of blood products in a balanced ratio one to one to one for plasma, platelets and red cells. This has become the standard of care for battlefield resuscitation and now many civilian centres. There is, however, some debate about the optimal ratio and the proper trial is a pragmatic phase three multi-centre RCT comparing one to one to one to one to one to two in 680 patients with severe trauma and major bleeding. They report baseline data was similar with median injury severity score of 26. 75% of patients required interventional radiology or operation within two hours. The primary outcomes of 24-hour and 30-day mortality were not different in the two groups. 
exsanguination, the predominant cause of death, was significantly reduced in the 1 to 1 to 1 group, and more patients achieved hemostasis in the 1 to 1 to 1 group. And there are no difference in 23 complications, including ARDS, multi-organ failure, thromboembolism, sepsis, etc. So overall, despite the negative primary outcome of mortality, the improvement in hemostasis and reduced death due to exsanguination led authors to conclude that one-to-one-to-one should be considered initially while severe trauma patients are actively bleeding before heading to a lab-guided approach. And finally, we have in American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine developing a clinically feasible personalised medicine approach to paediatric septic shock. So with so many failed interventions, improving outcomes in sepsis has proven to be incredibly difficult. The authors of this study have used genome-wide arrays from children with septic shock to demonstrate gene expression naturally aggregates into three subclasses which predict outcome. This study reports on the expression of 100 genes previously identified to be best subclass predictors in 168 children with septic shock. They used a multiple mRNA quantification platform capable of generating expression data in 8 to 12 hours. That is, they prospectively classified children with septic shock according to real-time gene expression and reduced this to a single gene expression score. The data, which was performed on a nanostring encounter, reproduced two of the septic shock subclasses, A and B, none in the prior subclass C, and prospectively gene expression subclass A was associated with outcome. They also examined the effect of corticosteroids. After adjusting for illness severity, PRISM score, presence of comorbidity and age, adjunctive corticosteroids were independently associated with an increased risk of mortality in the subjects in subclass A with odds ratio of 4.1, but not the subjects in subclass B. So this could be an exciting development in critical care medicine with the potential to use real-time gene expression to identify patient cohorts who may or may not benefit from specific interventions. Well, that's it for the Critique Journal Club podcast for February 2015. Come to the website and have a look at the articles and abstracts in detail. Otherwise, we'll see you next month. Thank you.